Now, uh, to kick us off, I'm going to ask you to uh, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 21. And I always like to start with something to kind of capture your attention. So usually that means sharing an embarrassing story about myself, okay? So um, today, uh, I'm going to share with you a story that's almost exactly 15 years old. When I first moved here... Uh, In 2007, I took the job to be part-time youth pastor and I was engaged to Mindy and uh, uh, we were to be married in September. And so sometime in the summer before we were married, um, if you can imagine this, half of this room used to be a basketball gymnasium. So right down the center aisle here was a wall and our worship center was like that half. And this half of the room plus those classrooms over there was a full-size basketball court. And in college, before I moved out here, it had happened a couple of times. I had dislocated my shoulder two or three times. It ended up happening eight times total. Um, But at that point, I hadn't done it too often, but I was playing basketball and somehow, someway, I I don't remember, I think probably I dunked the ball way too hard and it just like (laughs) threw my shoulder out. I don't remember exactly how it happened, but something like that. And anyways, my shoulder was dislocated and I couldn't get it back in. And you know how guys are, they're like, do, do, do you need help? Do you? And they just stand there and stare at you. They're not gonna help you. They're just gonna be like, are you okay? And then pretty soon they're like, can somebody else take his place? We need another guy, like, like just sit over there, you know? And so I, somehow I got to the hospital and uh, the other part of the story is my wife, had just been hired to be a full-time registered nurse at Mercy Medical Center, which now is St. Alphonsus Medical Center, which is off of 12th Avenue in Iowa, you know, that small little hospital. And the old building used to be behind where that new one is, but she had just been hired there and that was the ER I went to. And they put me under some sort of sedation and I'm told, I don't remember, but I'm told the doctor put his foot right here on my chest and used both arms to yank my arm back into place. Now I don't remember that because I was under the influence of something from the Lord. And, (laughs) but when I woke up and here's how I know it's from the Lord. When I woke up, I began to share the gospel with the entire medical staff. And the story in our family is now called the proverbial courtroom story because, the, because what I began to say was, if we were in a proverbial courtroom where God is the judge and we are the guilty sinner, Jesus came in and took our place and I began to share all this stuff and I, I felt a hand on my shoulder tap me in and said, Matt, it's okay, it's, you can be quiet. And it was my fiance. And I'm embarrassed to tell you this even now. And it's taken me 15 years to really tell this story. That's how long. But I turned to her and I said these words. I quoted from scripture. I said, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Now, I don't know why. I don't know why she still married me, okay? And I guess the proof that I, it was, that I was supposed to marry her was that she didn't dump me right on the spot. But I embarrassed myself. Oh, the other part of the story is then after that, I don't know if I was just embarrassed because I realized what I'd done. And it was also like some of the side effects of the medication, but I began to ugly cry and sob uncontrollably, <laughs> like snot and like, like you could hear me down the hallways. And uh, I couldn't stop, I just could not stop. And I, I do remember a nurse coming in and saying something to my wife, like, it's okay, it's, it's just the drugs. And uh, I asked her last night, and I, well, I'll tell you this, 
I would, if I had a problem medically, I would have gone to any ER in the country except that one because I was so embarrassed by what I had done. But I asked my wife last night, I'm like, do you remember that story? She's like, yeah, (laughs) I remember that. I said, were you embarrassed to go to work there a few weeks later? And she's like, well, that was the night shift and I was on day shift. Plus I just told myself you were on drugs that whole time. And so I just, I was like, ah. So here's the point. We've all done things that we're embarrassed by, right? We've all had embarrassing moments. More so, we've all done things that we regret. We've all had failures. We've all had moments where we look back at that and we're like, man, if I could go back in time, I would change that. In in John chapter 21, we're gonna read most of this chapter together and I'm gonna point out some things along the way. But the idea, the question for us today is what do we do with our shame? What do we do with our guilt? What do we do with our failures? How do we deal with those things? And I wanna look at this passage mostly from the perspective of Peter, one of the disciples. And just to give you kind of a context of the story. um, So if you go back to John 13, you have this moment where uh, Jesus is talking with the disciples and Peter makes this bold statement. He says, Lord, I love you. I, would, I, I, would, I love you so much, I would even die for you. And Jesus reminds him and he said, I don't doubt your love, but Peter, you're going to deny me three times. You're, there's gonna come a moment where you're not gonna wanna be associated with me. And Peter said, no, that's impossible. I would never do that. I would die for you. And then of course, if you fast forward through the account of the gospels, you find um, Jesus surrounded by Um, a group of men that have come to arrest him in the garden of Gethsemane and his disciples are there. And Peter at first takes out his sword and he takes a swipe at one of the guards and cuts off his ear. But Jesus tells him to put the sword away. He said, hey, that's not not what we're about here. Um, This is actually within my will, but he actually picks up the ear and he heals uh, the, the, the man that had his ear cut off. And then Jesus submits to that arrest and then Peter and the disciples actually become filled with fear. Some of them flee. They just, they just go away. They don't want to be there. And then Peter actually follows at a distance. And he follows Jesus to his trial. And he's there outside the palace in the courtyard. And it's there where people ask Peter, hey, aren't you one of his followers? And that's where he denies Christ. And he actually denies Christ three times, just as Christ predicted. And when he hears the rooster crow, then we see and and we read where Peter runs out, realizing that the words of Christ had come true and he weeps bitterly because of his regret, of his shame and his failure. Now, Jesus, as we're gonna read in a few moments, actually um, appears to the disciples two different times before the account we're gonna read together. But there's really no record of, of anything that took place between Jesus and Peter specifically. And there could have been, but as we're going to see, I believe that God has something for us today in this chapter. But again, looking at the example of Peter. So in John chapter 21 in verse three, now the other side of this that... Um, Jesus is resurrected from the grave. This is after his death and resurrection. And he's appearing to all kinds of people. He's appeared to the disciples a couple of times. But as Paul writes in Corinthians, he's actually appearing to like 500 people over the span of 40 days. And Jesus is flesh and bone. He's not spirit. And so he's not doing all of this simultaneously. 
So he's, there's moments when the disciples have seen him, but he's not with them. And so it's in one of these moments where Peter, he kind of looks around and he's like, Jesus is risen from the grave. That's awesome, but I don't really know what to do. And so in verse three, he says, I'm going fishing. Well, that's what his former job was before he uh, started following Jesus. And so he decides, hey, I don't know what to do. So I'm gonna go back to what I've always done. I'm gonna go fishing. And the, some other disciples said to him, we will go with you. And so they went out into the, got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. Verse four, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now I wanna pause here and just make a couple of observations because the question is, how do we deal with our shame? And here's what I think our natural human response is. We either busy ourselves or we distract ourselves and we ignore and we suppress the problem. See, Peter, he didn't know what to do without Jesus, so he just went back to his old ways. He went back to fishing. And I think we all identify with this feeling when, we're, we're, when, we're, when Jesus is not there or we're, we're not in connection with Jesus and we don't feel like he's very close or we're not in relationship with him, we don't have a purpose. We don't know what to do. In fact, I would submit to you that we don't have a purpose apart from Christ. And without Christ, we return to our old ways. We return to what is familiar. And that's exactly what Peter did. And here's the danger. In his focus on his work, in his focus on fishing, Jesus called to him from the shore and we read that it's, he was only about a hundred yards away, but yet Jesus was unrecognizable to him. And here's one of the dangers. When we get so caught up in our failure and in our shame and we just suppress it and we just try to fill the void with our own busyness or whatever we can distract ourselves with, Jesus, the danger is Jesus can become unrecognizable. What was once familiar can begin to fade. And sometimes we can even find ourselves in a a sort of victim mindset where it's kind of a woe is me attitude and it's all inward focused and we just can't get out of that boat, so to seem. But I would remind you, if we keep doing what we've always done, we'll get what we've always got. And Peter returned to what was familiar and he even wasn't doing very well at that. They'd caught nothing. But it's only when Jesus interjects himself into the narrative that things change. Verse seven, then the disciple that Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. So John recognizes that it's Jesus. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a boat that was headed to shore, but um, somebody just throwing themselves into the water to swim there. It's like, hey, it'd just be faster if you stayed in the boat. Like, like, what are you doing, you know? And Peter didn't seem to care what the disciples thought. He didn't seem to care that they had just hauled in this huge net of fish and it was probably pretty heavy. He didn't care about helping them. He didn't care about his responsibilities at that moment. All he knew was, hey, Jesus and I, there's something we need to talk about and I'm glad he's here and I want to be with him. 
And so when it comes to dealing with our shame, our regret, and our, our failure, the spiritual response is opposite of the human response. The spiritual response is this. We should run after Jesus. We should, in a sense, you could say, jump out of the boat. And I can't help but think about how different this is from the story of Adam and Eve that we read in, in the first few chapters of Genesis. See, Adam and Eve had fallen, they had failed. There was shame, there was regret. And when the Lord came looking for them and he called to them, what did they do? They ran and hid. That's our natural response. Here's Peter's response, which I think should be our response. The exact opposite, run to Christ, to run to him to not care what anybody else thinks, to jump out of the boat and to pursue him. No matter if you look kind of stupid or if it doesn't make sense, even if it means uh, putting some things that are really good and important in a secondary position in our life, he pursued Christ. And I would just remind you that when it comes to dealing with our shame and our failure and our, our regret, do not waste time. Do not let it fester. Do not ignore it. Do not just think, well, it's going to go away on its own. Time will kind of take care of it. Peter's response was immediate. As soon as he saw Jesus, as soon as he saw the opportunity, he went for it. And there, I would also remind you, and I kind of just touched on this, but there are some really, really important things, good things in our life that demand our attention and need our attention. Things like family, things like kids, things like work, things like our finances and, and things of that nature. Those are really, really important, but they do not surpass the place of Christ in our life. Peter's job, his work, it was, it was important. It's probably a good bet that fishing was their main source of income, but that did not take the place of Christ. He left that to pursue Christ. And I would just remind you, if you want blessing in your relationships, if you want a better marriage, if you want, a, a, if you want to be a better parent, a better spouse, a better friend, if you want to be a better employee, a better boss, if you want to have, uh, be a better steward of your finances, it all comes out of putting Christ above all of those things. In fact, Matthew 6, says it this way, seek ye first the kingdom and all these things will be added unto you. And sometimes there are some really, really good things that, that the enemy would come in and say, well, you need to focus on this first and then you can go to Jesus. And a lot of times we buy into this mindset that I kind of need to fix myself or clean myself up before I go to Christ. I want us, I want to encourage you and, I, and this is for myself to, to, to kind of with some abandon go after Christ. We don't have to clean ourselves up first. He's okay with the mess. He's okay with some of the dysfunction. He's okay with us bringing our problems to him. He just wants to know us. And so what an example of Peter that with, without regard, he just threw himself into the sea to pursue Christ. I think we would benefit a lot with that same mindset. But here's the deal. When he gets to the shore, Christ invites him into a conversation. Now, how many of you have ever had that moment? You come home and uh, your spouse looks at you and she, and she, or maybe it's your husband, we need to talk. Or maybe you were dating, remember that? And it was like, whoever you're dating, we need to talk. Like, didn't you just wanna like not talk to them for like three days? Okay, just talk to your spouse if your spouse, you know, don't let three days go by. But sometimes when we hear those words, we need to talk, the last thing we wanna do is talk. 
And Jesus, when, when Peter drags himself up on the shore, he says, come and have breakfast. I can't help but put in my own thoughts in this. It, it kind of sounds like, Peter, we need to talk. And so he invites Peter to breakfast along with the disciples. And this is what we read in verse nine. It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus had revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Here's the thing. And we're gonna read this in the next few verses. When Jesus wants to have a conversation, it's because he wants to do something. He wants to do something in us. And here's God's response to our shame. We have the human response, which is ignore, suppress, just let's not deal with it. Let's hide. There's the spiritual response where we, we should pursue Jesus. We should run after him, run to him. But here's how God wants to respond to our shame and our failure. God is a good father who wants to intentionally and completely and deeply heal us. See, Jesus doesn't ignore sin. He faces it head on. He faces it with a cross. He, he faced it with the tomb. And then he proved his deity by raising, uh, being raised to life over the grave. And he has forgiven our sins. But there is also, um, because of God's justice and holiness, there is a time where he will deal with sin and his wrath will deal with sin. Quarantine is kind of a word we all identify with over the last uh, few years. God will quarantine sin and evil once and for all one day. But he has provided a way for you and I to escape his wrath through the work and through the, the, the forgiveness and the death and the, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You and I, ultimately, that's what we deserve. We, are, we were part of the problem. We were sinners. We were part of the problem of evil, we have contributed to it. All of us stand guilty before God. And if we're honest, we all deserve the wrath of God. But in his loving kindness, in his mercy, he has provided a way. And so because we are standing before Christ as saved with a new identity, we stand forgiven. We no longer have a fear of God's wrath, but we have hope. And so Christ doesn't just take our sin and sweep it on the rug and, and, and ignore it. He deals with it. But one of the way he deals with it is that he wants to address in our lives. He wants to forgive it and he wants to restore us. And so we read this conversation between Jesus and Peter, starting in verse 15. And it says this, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, I don't think he was pointing to the other disciples that were listening in. Do you love me more than John? Do you love me more than Andrew? Do you love me more than him? No, I think he was pointing to the fish, the catch. And he was saying, you know, Peter, this is your old way of living. This is what you identify with. This is what you're good at. This is what you use to kind of um, gain your kind of self-confidence from. This is who you are. Do you love me more than these? And by the way, I did a little bit of research on first century fishermen. This was not a job that was looked down on. This was actually considered a, a noble job. 
And so if you were a fisherman, you were, you were pretty well respected in the community. And so Jesus, I think, is partly addressing that, like, hey, do you love me more than this? Peter's response, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said, feed my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus said, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now it's kind of odd, right? If your spouse said to you, do you love me? Yeah. And then they ask again, hey, I just said that, you know. And you kind of maybe get a little bit grieved as Peter did like, hey, don't you know? And of course, he's addressing almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. And he's saying, of course, you know, you know, before I even know, you know, everything, you know that I love you. And, and there almost seems to be an implied question. Why do you keep asking? And I can't help but wonder in my study, I tried to break down the Hebrew and the different or the Greek and the different words that were used for love. And I've heard sermons that way and I couldn't really find anything because some of those words are used interchangeably. But here's what I did find is that there is a connection back to the denial of Peter. How many times did Peter deny Christ? Three times. How many times did Jesus ask for his love? Here's what I can't help but think about. And whether this is exactly what the scripture is saying or not, I believe this to be true about our father is that he wants to completely, intentionally, fully heal us and forgive us. He doesn't do anything halfway. He doesn't do anything partway. He, he, everything that he does is complete. And when I read those words where Peter was grieved, was Peter remembering was he remembering the tears? Was he remembering this, the moment of shame when he ran away and he wept in private because of what he had done? And was he grieved in his spirit because he recognized that Jesus was restoring him completely? I believe he was. Now that's just my opinion, but here's what's not my opinion. Christ wants to restore you. No matter what you've done, no matter what the enemy tries to bring up from your past and, and, keep, and use as a way to keep you from your future, Christ wants to forgive you and he wants to do it completely and fully. A part of this that I think that we need to understand is that Jesus also commissions Peter to do something. He, commi he commissions him to feed his sheep. And this is a reference to the first century church. And if you fast forward a few weeks into the book of Acts, Peter preaches one of the first sermons um, in, in, that, in that book and 3,000 people are, are saved and baptized in one single day. You could say it was the first church plant ever in Jerusalem of the, of the New Testament church. Peter preaches that message. 
God gets all the glory, but Peter preaches that message. And as I was studying this, my mind ran back to that moment in Matthew 16 where, where Peter is having a conversation and actually Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples. And he said, people say I'm this and that, but who do you say I am? And Peter kind of boldly before anyone else, it was almost like he's that kid that always wants to have the answer first. And so he like, he, he rushes to the answer and he says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the one we have waited for. You're the one who has been prophesied about and you are the son of God. And Jesus affirms this and he says, of course you are right, but this is not revealed to you by men. This has been revealed to you from God. And then Jesus does something significant, which I don't want us to miss is, and that's that he changed Peter's name. And see, Peter's former name was actually Simon Barjona, which simply means Simon, son of John or Simon, son of Jonah. It wasn't a, a, a significant name. It wasn't a noble name. It didn't really mean anything of, of, of importance. But Jesus changed his name from this time forward. He said, you will be called Peter, which means rock. And this is not a stone or a pebble that's small in nature, but, but the rock that, that Jesus or the word Peter means or refers to is more like a cliff or an outcropping. I don't know if you've ever seen a mountain with a, with a cliff, but, it, but when I see something like that, not only do I think of its majesty, but I think of its strength. And Peter was anything but a rock. His denial was to come. How much more do we feel the weight of our, of our shame and our guilt when we know that Christ has called us to something, he's placed a, a purpose on our life and then we fail in our pursuit of that. And then the enemy is right there and say, you know what, Jesus said you were a rock. You're no rock. You denied him three times. You're anything but a rock. Something that I harp on and, and if you, continue to listen to me over the next few months as I teach the, the, it seems like identity is such a huge part of not only scripture, but it's a huge part of our culture. Every message that's pointed at our families, at our kids, at our church, as us as individuals, it's an attack on our identity. And I do not think that's by accident. And therefore, I do not think it's by, by any accident. And I think it's very intentional of our, of our good, good father who speaks into our identity. He says, this is who I say you are. It doesn't matter what you have done. You don't have to earn some sort of identity. I'm going to give you an identity. And Peter had done nothing to earn the title of rock. But Jesus called him that anyways. And I believe that Jesus has named you and he's called you to something and you haven't aspired to that yet, but he's called you to it anyways because he sees it in your future. And regardless of your weaknesses and of your failures, he still sees you as commissioned. And if we go to him and we say, hey, here's my failure, here's my mess, here's my regret, here's my sin, I need your healing, he commissions us into his purpose and he grants us a new identity just as he did for Peter. But part of that comes with a death to the old way. The next few verses, Jesus actually describes, he gives a reference to the kind of death that Peter will die. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody said, do you love me? And you said, yes. And then he said, by the way, you're gonna die soon. 
you'd be like, hey, where, where'd that conversation, where, we just took a left turn, you know, like, where's this coming from? And Peter kind of responds again, identify with his response. He turns to John who's standing there and he goes, well, what about him? Does he have to die too? And, and Jesus actually says, you don't worry about him. You just follow me. You keep your eyes on me. But here's the point. If we're going to live a new life, if we're gonna embrace the identity that Christ has given to us, it means letting go of our old life. It means letting go of our old identity. It means letting go of our former passions. It means letting go of our former insecurities, our shame, our regret, our former ways of thinking. It means letting go of what we used to identify with. In fact, Paul writes it this way. He says, it is, he said, I am crucified with Christ and yet I live. And I believe that it's our decision to submit to the cross. We must come to that point where we submit to the death that Christ calls us to, not a physical death, but a spiritual one. But when we trust him enough to, to do that work in us, it, then it enables him to raise us up to new life. And here's the main point of today. If we want a transformed life in Christ, we need to have a transformed love of Christ. And this comes with a whole lot of other things like trust. If you love somebody, you're gonna also trust them. If you love somebody, you're going to respond to their call on your life. And if we love God, there should be an element of trust. And if we love God, there should be a response where our actions reveal our love. But I, I think that if we try to get it backwards, if we try to earn his love by performing our way into his good favor, it's not gonna work. That's religion, that's not relationship. And Christ has not called us to a religion, he's called us to a relationship. In fact, in Revelation, he said, he talks about some of the churches there in Revelation. I'm not gonna go into it, but he said, but some have forgotten their first love. Our first love is Christ. And so if we want this kind of transformation, we need not, not, understand, not, not only understand that he loves us, which he does, but we need to, to love him. Now, it is intertwined with our actions. So don't get the cart before the horse. Love comes first, but there is a response. And so I've, I've uh, tried to put together a little bit of application for you to do. And here's what I think will be evident in the life of someone who really loves Christ. First of all, taking our, our, a clue from Peter, we won't ignore or suppress what needs to be brought out into the open. We will run to him. We will offer it to him. And so I would simply say, start with God and openly name and confess your shame. If you're dealing with something today, let's just talk to him about it. Let's have a conversation with him about it. And like I said, he already knows, but we still need to bring it to Christ and leave it with him. And by the way, I would just, as a side note, just because we have an intellectual understanding that God already knows everything, including our feelings, including our emotions, including our mistakes, including our sins. It doesn't negate the need to come before him and to confess and repent of, of our shame and our guilt. He knows it, but shouldn't that make it easier to come to him anyways? In fact, Hebrews 4 says he is a high priest. He understands temptation. He was even tempted in all points just as we are. He understands our pain. He understands our weaknesses. And so, because he understands, boldly approach the throne. Our shame is not a reason to hide or, or to, to run. 
If anything, it's, it's a reason to go to him. He already knows. He already knows. He saw it before you did. He already died for it. But let's bring it to him, seeking the restoration that he offers. To do this, I think it's good to do, to, to talk about these kinds of things with close, trusted friends. Ecclesiastes talks about, a little bit about this when it says that two or three are stronger than one. And when we are in relationship with Christ, there are gonna be days where like Peter, we're going to fail. And how much better would it be if someone would be there to help pick us up, to encourage us, to say, hey, keep going. Let's get back in the fight. Let's take the next step. We all need people in our life who can do that for us. It's one of the reasons why I so appreciate the efforts of our discipleship ministry here at Grace to try to intentionally connect people to a, a friend or a mentor or a small group of people that can encourage us in our moments of weakness, in our moments of shame. And I don't think those should be big groups and I don't think everybody should know everything, but healing and new habits are easier when done alongside a friend or a mentor. You know, there's a guy in our church that has this crazy idea. I don't think he's here today, so I'm gonna say it. He has this idea to take me hunting this fall. And a few weeks ago, he was like, hey, uh, meet at my house. We're gonna run two miles. And I was like, two miles? How about like 20 yards? Like, like I haven't run in like a decade. And uh, we ran around the track at Lone Star Middle School. He said it was six times to do two miles or something like that. I lost all consciousness about mile or, or lap two. And um, I have no idea what happened. But here's what I know is that he kept in my ear. He's like, hey, just one more lap. Keep going, just another lap. Let's run a little bit harder. And I was like, and then he was like, hey, why don't you set the pace? And I, we walked. And then, um, and then he was like, okay, I'm gonna set the pace this time. As horrible as that experience was, and it was absolutely horrible, it was much, much easier when somebody ran alongside me. And now like the Nike app has this like whole running deal and you can wear headphones and there's like this person telling you like how cool you are and how good you are and how amazing you are. And you know, you're a runner. And I'm like, I'm not a runner, you know, but I, and I've been trying to run ever since that moment. I'm not doing great but it's a lot easier when there's somebody in my ear literally encouraging me. I think we need that when it comes to our pursuit and our walk with Christ. We need somebody to encourage us. Secondly, I think a thing that would, would be good for us to consider is to, well, it's not good for us to consider. I think we must do this. We need to embrace the mission and the identity that God has placed on us. And I talked a lot about that already, but um, a lot of times the enemy will, will bring up what our failures are, he will, he will name them and he will label you. He will try to name you. He will try to identify you. And, and God may be calling you to something. You're like, well, I can't do that because of blank. Or I can't step into what God's calling me to because I am blank. And I think it's a really big difference. It's subtle in our language, but I think there's a big difference between saying I have failed or I failed versus I am a failure. There's a really big difference. And the enemy will try to label you and I with our past, whatever it might be. And it can erode our trust and belief and we'll say, well, I can't do that. And I would remind you that the great theologian, Master Yoda in the Empire Strikes Back <laughs> said this, 
You do not believe, that is why you fail. Being a little bit tongue in cheek with the whole theologian thing, but I think that's true. When we fail to believe who God says we are, then we will fail. Let's, em- let's intentionally embrace the, the, the identity that Christ has placed on us. And when we believe that, then our future is before us. Then we can embrace the mission that God has called us to. Thirdly, I would say we, it, it, we have some responsibility to participate with God in his healing process. We have a responsibility to participate in his healing process. You know, a few years ago, a man came to our church and he was in a powered wheelchair. Couldn't stand, hadn't walked in months, maybe years. Um, it was a kind of a, con- uh, a combination of some, some chronic pain issues. I'm not sure how those all, thing, all those things got started. Um, some of it was mindset, some of it was personal responsibility, but he was under a weight. And Pastor Keith, I believe, preached that morning about going all in with, with Christ. And so he stood at the end of the service and raised his hand um, and said, I want to go on with, all in with Christ. And him just simply standing was a small miracle because he hadn't stood in months. His body was so beat down and broken down and under the influence of medication to deal with the pain and everything, his muscles had literally begun to, to, to shrink and to become atrophied and he couldn't even walk because he had lost the, the muscle mass in his legs. But he stood that morning and said, I wanna go all in with Christ. Now, I don't know if some of you know Adrian Rapp or not, but Adrian has been on a journey for four years and last summer, he did a cannonball off the dock at the lake at our student summer camp while he was one of our small group leaders. He went from being in a wheelchair to doing a cannonball. Let me say that again. He went from being in a wheelchair to doing a cannonball. Do you know what a cannonball is? <laughs> Maybe you don't know. Like it's when you get to the edge of the pool or the water and you jump as high as you can, you tuck your knees up on your chin and you make this huge splash. That's what a cannonball is. So you did know. Okay, you're not surprised. So he went from a wheelchair to doing a cannonball. Okay. And God didn't heal him in that moment. Adrian didn't walk out four years ago after that first Sunday and do a cannonball that afternoon. He participated in a healing process. He started walking. He started getting up a little bit earlier. He started setting a goal for this many steps a day and then it was 5,000 and then it was 10,000. Now he's running. He's one of these crazy people that tries to get me to run with him. He's like, you can run with me, Matt. It's great, you know. And there are days when he doesn't do everything right. If you talk to Adrian, he's not perfect. Has there been temptation along the way? Definitely. Has there been failure along the way? Yes. Has there been sin along the way? Probably but he has fallen forward every single time and he's gotten up and he said, God, whatever step you have for me today, I'm going to take that step. I'm going to participate in the work that you are doing in my heart and life. A lot of times we can sit back and say, well, I I don't know how to fix this. God, this is all on you. You fix it. I'm just gonna sit here and wait. You let me know when you're done. No, there is a personal responsibility when it comes to our spiritual health, with our spiritual healing. Does he get all the credit? Absolutely. Is there a personal responsibility along the way? You betcha. And so when we say we're here to help people find Jesus and take their next steps, that's one of the reasons why we say that. And finally, as I close, I can't help but 
say this, and it probably goes without saying, but in all of this, do not forget to pause, to spend time with Christ. Through this series, we've been talking about meals with Jesus. There are moments where we just need to sit down and talk with Jesus, where we need to take in his word, where we need to take our cares to him in prayer, when we need to spend time with him intentionally in worship. And in our busyness and in our routines and in our schedules, it's so easy to forget to pause. It's so easy to forget to spend time with Christ. And I don't wanna make this a legalistic thing or something that I don't wanna communicate unintentionally that you have to do this every single day. And if you miss a day, he's gonna be upset with you. That's not it at all. It's, it's a relationship. He just wants to spend some time with you. And if we love Christ, I believe that we'll wanna spend time with him. And I get it, I'm a pastor. Some of the things that I look back on, I'm like, well, I'm so stupid. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why do I think that? And one of the things that I beat myself up about so often is that I forget to do this. I, I, I don't do this pause. I have all the intentions in the world. I have all the apps. I have all the planners. I have all the tools. There's no excuse. So let's return to our first love if we haven't already. And let's spend some time with Jesus. It doesn't have to be long. Five minutes, 15 minutes, he just wants, to, he just wants to, to hang out with you. And my wife is a great example of this. She prays for the littlest things. She sees Jesus in everything. We'll be like circling the parking lot and all of a sudden there'll be one right by the door and we'll pull in to a parking spot and she'll be like, thank you, Jesus, you gave us a good part. I'm like, he did not. <laughs> he doesn't care about that. She, he had nothing to do with that. I promise you, Jesus told them where to put the net and they caught more fish. My wife prayed for me to catch a fish in front of my kids. It happened. She told me later, I'm like, I thought I was a good fisherman. I'm like, yeah, I got that trout on a dry fly. That was awesome. She's like, yeah, I prayed. I'm like, oh, I had nothing to do with it. It was all. (laughs) But she sees Jesus in all the little things. How cool is that? That's a life that loves Christ. And I'm not saying you have to do it just like that. You may not have to pray about a parking space or, or ask him to help you catch a fish or whatever. But I would just remind you, see Jesus in everything. Take him with you through your day. Not just for those 15 minutes and then leave him there. What if we lived with him every single moment of the day? You know, I think that's a good response to how Christ loves. I think that's a, a, that will reveal our love to him. And even though we've all had shame and we've all had moments of regret, I wanna remind you that Jesus always has some time for you. He's always available. Do not let the enemy tell you you're not worthy. Do not let the enemy tell you that you need to clean yourself up first and then you can somehow bring something presentable to him. No, just, just run to him and just like Peter, experience the restoration that Christ has to offer. Let's stand and be dismissed. Thank you, Father, so much for your love to us. Thank you that you are a good father who wants to completely intentionally restore and forgive us. Lord, I thank you for the example of Peter where he didn't shy away from you, but he pursued you. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's tempted to hide or to run or to ignore, I pray that they would realize that all that you are offering is mercy, forgiveness, restoration. You're not a God who condemns, 
You're a God who restores. And Lord, we thank you so much for that. And I pray that we would live in step with you, in relationship with you. May this not be a religion where we just try to earn our way into your good favor. May we remember that you just want to know us. So Lord, restore our love for you if that's what our next step is. And Lord, I pray that whatever our next step is, I don't know what it is. It's different for probably every individual in this room, but Lord, give us the courage to take that next step of obedience. Lord, we love you and we give you all the praise that you are worthy of in your name, amen. Thank you so much for your kind attention. Happy Father's Day. Pops, grab your pop out there and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for your kind attention.